Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Piron. Well, here's another conversation with my son, Dave, about practice. Yes, of course, because that's the big question. What is practice? What do we know about it? Why don't we know more? I certainly have made an effort so far to pursue that question with over 200 conversations, because one thing that Peter says in one of our conjectures is that each person who is a practitioner is the one who knows what that means to them and knows how it helps them be who they are. And the best way to discover that is to have a conversation and listen carefully. What Dave and I have been doing though is trying to probe more deeply into what practice is when it's happening. And in this conversation, it gives us a chance to look at the act, A-C-T, itself. Because practice is behavior, and it is doing. And in those moments when the act is occurring, a lot of things are happening behind our eyebrows. Dave has an abiding fascination with all things having to do with the mind, the brain, consciousness, and social conversation that leads to mutual understanding and mutual action. So here is another conversation with Dave and Dad. Almost all of the podcasts that I've recorded have been done virtually through Zoom. But in two instances now, Dave and I have actually been together face-to-face, once in Maine and now here in Baltimore. And in both instances, we're trying out the same conversation with a recorder as opposed to the Zoom mechanism. So this conversation may or may not work technically. But at the basis of an awful lot of what Dave has shared particularly is something I discovered in recent podcast conversations with scholars who are now of an age when when they were breaking into the uh, organization studies fields, they studied what I would consider some of the original thinkers. For example, Dave, someone you've mentioned several times, George Herbert Mead. And if you would refresh my memory about Mead's approach to human interaction, which we eventually call social inaction, then uh, you can help the old man understand things better. Well, uh, George Herbert Mead was considered one of the um, school of uh, philosophy called American pragmatism, called American mostly because uh, it was um, one of the philosophical areas um, one of, probably one of the few actually born in the United States uh, through a number of practitioners, uh, um, some of whom I, I think uh, who, who uh, I, I believe 
William James was considered his field was psychology, yes, but um, was uh, certainly someone who was looked looked at among the philosophers as as uh, roughly in the school of thought of of uh, pragmatism. But others were John Dewey and and um, and then Peirce. Yeah, we can't fit, we cannot forget Peirce. <laughs> uh, George Herbert Mead was in did his schooling around the time where William James was uh, already an established uh, professor. And I think uh, Peirce was already, well, through his career, I think he'd already been thrown out of Johns Hopkins at uh, that time. But And we're at Johns Hopkins. We're very nearby right now. So. Yeah. And uh, so um, I would say most of uh, Mead's uh, writings, uh, by the time he was uh, out of grad school and becoming a philosopher was in late 1800s um and some of his uh he didn't do a lot of writing uh, and i would say most of his influential papers were in the early 20th century um and then a lot of his what he's known for was mostly through his lectures that were written down by his students Hmm. so um um i don't know that he had quite the systematic body of work that someone like John Dewey did, the way he uh, developed his um, blending of, of philosophy of mind into the pragmatism and, and, and the psychology of the day and, and observations of behavior, I think became influential, um, especially to John Dewey, um, but, but also to an uh, area of social, what's called sociological social psychology, mostly because it influenced sociologist more than it did psychology, which went into more of the behaviorism at the time and yeah. experimental psychology later on and, and then cognitive psychology, yeah. which continued into a, 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 a somewhat different line and didn't ever really blend back into sociological social psychology very well to this day. Um, but from that tradition, um, especially fields called symbolic interactionism and certain areas of, of, uh, focus on language and linguistics um, meets had some influence. Hmm. I wonder before you move on on that, how, uh, maybe I said no way of knowing this, but you mentioned the students did a lot of careful listening and gave us uh, much of Mead's thought. But I wonder if, if any of those gentlemen interacted directly with each other or even or at least by correspondence i really don't know <laughs> yeah i mean because uh we talk about dewey and james and mead and and first and sort of like a uh a club but they're not i mean but their work came out around the late 1800s and some into the early 1900s uh, I wonder if at least they read each other's stuff. I think, yeah, I think there was a community. Um, I think they mostly were all in the East for the most part during during those formative years, um, and so I imagine there was some community. Um, but a lot of it was uh, through through students who kind of championed and, and kept kept the ideas going. Um, and again, many of those were, were in a, a fairly narrow field of, of social psychology called symbolic interactionism. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, when I, when I picked him up, uh, um, I, I was kind of 
I'd mentioned before, I'd studied with um, Tom Morioni at Colby College, who was himself uh, studied in the, with uh, Herbert Bloomer um, in his later years at, at Berkeley in California. And, mm -hmm. and Herbert Bloomer studied with Mead. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I'd forgotten that connection. Yeah, so he was, he was, you know, there was that chain at least of of students that that uh, I guess I'd be fourth generation of of hearing. Hmm hearing about the ideas and then picked them up and and then I I towards the end of college I started blending Mead's ideas with with what I was learning in in um, neuropsychology um, and right. physiology uh, from uh, Dr. Eddie Terry who was at Colby yeah um, who himself had done quite a lot of work um, in um, the structure of uh, what used to be called limbic system now it's not considered a system per se but many systems but the area that's heavily tied to emotions um and its interaction and, and its heavy heavy integration with the uh, cortex um which at the time really was a, a, a new a new physical clue that wasn't there before that the, the emotion parts of the brain and, and the neocortex which is supposed to be the most advanced for humans is actually tied together very um, closely throughout the most complex things that uh, human brains can do. The, mm. the emotions, the, the ties to the emotion systems are right there. Yeah. And in some of the, our earlier talks, we we are now getting to the point of answering even more reasons why that, that may be important. Yeah. The very nature of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. I... I will interject again that um, there is a, a pattern that you mentioned of uh, people studying with the original thinkers as students and then carrying that on. And we can assume that people then learn from them who later on then learn from their successors if they were all in the somewhat in the academic world philosophy, social psychology, soci sociological, sociology. And uh, I'm looking, jumping way ahead for just a moment to say that when I've talked to uh, some of the folks for the podcast who are well into their career, even retired as writers and professors, they almost automatically, when we ask, I ask them, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. They'll go right back to, well, I studied with Churchman at Berkeley, or I studied with, Peter Vale would say, I studied with Eric Trist from, uh, uh, at, at Harvard, and uh, uh, Roth, and So I guess what I'm saying is, here I am in this work that I've taken on in my retirement years, carrying on Peter Vale and the thinking that he's, been able to at least consolidate in the book that that uh, he got started and I and I finished called on practice as a way of being and so you know we're kind of like benefactors of people who go way back Peter also was very close to the system world and and uh, and probably read Mead originally yeah. <laughs> Mead's original papers but Mead wouldn't at that time there wasn't really the concept of systems thinking. No. 
there wasn't a concept concept of the computational method of the brain so much. Right. He was he would be um, behaviorism was was a, a thing then, I and mean, he kind of critiqued it even in its early form. Mm. Um, but what where he would have come from is an appreciation of the biological, and I think that. I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I, I think you could really find those themes in in the pragmatism of the time. The note, the idea that human beings are are, are still animals; they live in a biological world, mm-hmm. and that's really where systems thinking about the brain, or and really, I think about every, you know, pretty much everything humans do. Um, is right there. You have to understand the biological. It's not putting models of computers onto society. It's not putting right. machines onto society. Right. There was already that trend starting at, at the turn of the twentieth um, century, for sure. Yeah. But that's always been, I think, a misdirection. And I think the systems thinking of the sort that I've been talking about in some of our talks. In action, in body cognition, um, the the uh, self-organizing systems theory, mm-hmm. all of that, I've been able to find to be compatible with with Mead because I think Mead Mead wasn't in that he was in he was in that that um, I guess area of metaphor. Yeah, you yeah. certainly would have known Darwin. So, um, natural selection and all those kind of things. Yeah, and and, and early neurophysiology. He did study some of that in Europe. Now, remind me of a couple of the points that you've taken from Mead, and I remember one of them was the act. Yes, that's sort of a pivotal point for understanding what he was offering us. I think so. I think, and it's I've been considering the. The idea, looking at some of the um, these newer ideas of what's the nature of human consciousness, human mm. consciousness in a very, um, some, some might say, a deflationary sense, and then not not uh, not so much the mystical consciousness, but how do we have a mind? How do we have a subjectivity? How do we know what it's like to be us or or to experience the color red? Right, um, you know the problem of mind and body, um, and having that be something that that is, you know, organically grown out of out of um, the activity of yeah. the brain within a world in which we interact, and our world being um, so heavily social that it is literally um, how how we subjectively feel existence. So, what is the act? So, the act, um, he broke it down in an interesting way. Remember, at the time of behaviorism, the notion of the act was pretty much stimulus and response. Right, so external, Skinnerian. Which is very mechanistic. So, there's exter- external uh, stimuli, there's sets of um, a black box in the brain connecting A to B, mm-hmm. and then you get output, which is a bunch of templates. Um even as one added some early notions of, of of current cognitive science, usually what would be done is simply putting a representation in between one's uh, um, input and output, um, and then various ways of representing it 
would connect the associative parts of the brain, mm-hmm. and then you get output. But it's very much that external to internal to to external behavior was still seen, I think, kind of as a straight line. Mm. And one of the systems things in in me that that you, that you could see if you look carefully at his work was the idea that it wasn't simply one way; it was an interaction. Mm. All the way down, all the way, it's it's really uh, individual interacting with the world, and uh, in a particular sequence. In the sequence of an act, he says, started with an impulse. Mm-hmm. The impulse first, and the impulse didn't necessarily wasn't quite a stimulus. It wasn't from the outside. It was an interaction of inside and outside, and then from there it went to perception, which wasn't just. Um, you know, the impressions of the outside um, making, fitting into the little squares on the inside that would turn it into a representation. It was very much, again, an interaction, an interaction in which you were predicting to a degree what was going to happen and seeing how well it fit at that moment. Hmm. So, so, which in the prediction he called meaning. And meaning was defined as a tendency to act. And so, and this idea of tendency to act as coming from the impulse. So the impulse kind of gets you seeing, well, what is it in the world that's mm-hmm. been a perturbation to, mm-hmm. to what was going on before? The meaning is a tendency to act. So, so perception was very much not just sensory, but sensory motor, sensory action, sensory immediately towards predicting what one might do in addition to what one might perceive. So, Test, tested in, in the moment, you mean right right away to some it, kind of it's, action? It's already kind of prepping something for testing. Mm-hmm. But it's one where part of that test is what you're going to do about it right yeah. away. Yeah. And then what's what's when you're actually doing something about it, he called that the manipulation phase, um, where you're where you're interacting with the world, and then the consummation phase, which is very much kind of a um a a measuring an evaluation of how well it went yeah and there's a measure of goodness and 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 um badness or you know well you know well-fitting ill-fitting and and the degree to which if something's ill-fitting to the to the um to the uh prediction uh and if your adjustment hasn't gone well the adjustment might create more impulse or a new impulse or start, you know, making a new course of action in which you are either moving your yourself towards some solution to the error in prediction or or adjusting your perception of the situation itself. And uh, yeah, yeah. And that's very much that's a very current notion. It's called um, it's it's uh, predictive processing. And what I've been talking about uh, this, the inaction or embodied cognition. Right. That's that's um, that in itself is a systems model. Systems are self organization based model. It's one where yeah. currently you you'll see it talked about by um, the um, the, uh, the Carl Friston um, neurophysiologist or neuro uh, neuroscience and and um, neuropsychologist who talks about free energy which yeah. is an information processing model of sorts 
where the error between prediction and what one perceives is is an actual um, ex- can is expressed physiologically as a, sort of a degree of entropy, which huh. which can take a self organization, self organizing system beyond beyond what's sustainable, and then break it apart and create um, a sudden reorganization uh, amongst uh, potential options based on the uh, what's uh, What's uh, what potentially can be done among a system of constraints, but what that is is a complicated way of expressing what has grown, in, in or or even evolved in a sense as one's capacity to act based on uh, memories, based on what's lear- what's been learned, yeah, based on what's uh, perceivable in the immediate situation, yeah, and um, this went back to our talk on. Ilya Prigogine and the Nature of Living Systems. <laughs> I remember well. I love that name. Uh, yeah, and the dissipation Ilya. of en- entropy by by any living system. And so I've begun to argue that perhaps uh, when we're talking about the act, we're not necessarily talking about um, just neurons, but we're talking about um, neuronal groups and yeah. patterns of firing and the persistence of patterns of firing. Yeah, and the, and and what they can do. And then there's a whole other complicated one we got into in one in one another podcast where we'll, how do you express the dynamics of it? And we talked about the Markov blanket. <laughs> I remember that. Well, maybe we'll bring that up again later. But yeah. Like so many, only so many tangents we can get into. But it, what the point is for the act is um, I'm arguing that it is very much a systems, a, a, a very current um, approach to embodied cognition, social inaction, of both social and, and physiological inaction, mm-hmm. inaction um, in, in the way we've been talking about it. And it's one where um, um, there's a, well, it's just, it's just a different, it's a different way of approaching um, a lot of these questions, but one that is very much in tune with so much of other biological living systems that um, you don't get into certain contradictions that you do with other approaches. Right. Starting way back with Mead's interest in the biology of human yeah. the, and the sameness among among animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I would love over this tiny fence that we're sitting next to between us, uh, the current buzz or conversation, particularly at the uh, management and organization behavior conference I, I just attended attended earlier this week, which is AI, artificial intelligence, and how that um, works with or for uh, uh, for or against uh, the human aspect of of all life, particularly organization life. And as I'm listening to your review, the thinking from Mead on. I think my sense of it is that there's no way I think in in hell <laughs> that people who write code are ever going to be able to come even close to what you just described that we all do moment to moment and with with the brain fixing in emotions and with with the predictive aspects of of our minds um uh, I'm I'm cha- I'm trying to champion the human intelligence but Maybe I'm taking it to a much more pedantic level, Dave, than you're, than you're seeing it. Um, not necessarily. Uh, um, 
there's a couple of I mean we we, we don't have to go too deep into that but I, I think uh, most of what you'll hear currently on on things like the the chat bots chat bots um, yeah. those are or even voice recognition from your phone um, that is thoroughly computational it's not at all based on living systems Mm-mm. dynamics at all um, it is able to do a very good job we you know 20 years ago it, it, it was thought to be much almost almost impossible even to do what's being done now but yeah. it's being done now is by brute force computation yeah and it's it's fine but it's just running algorithms in a way that's not at all like like the brain yeah. does it, it, it beyond a cert, to a certain degree having um, consistent associations patterns that that do exist between phrases and and things like that but mm-hmm. only only in an abstracted sense yeah now there are some people even um uh mark Sloans, who i talked to before is working with a group who's trying to, to, to turn some of these uh, embodied cognition ideas into um better ai but mm-hmm. i think what they'll find is what they find even with this like the quantum computing that they don't have the that that the ways of constraining the possibilities can't be built in well into the code. Yeah. Because by nature, they become heavily stochiastic, heavily reliant on having lived a life, basically. Before. <laughs> well, and being, there's and our being edge a, as human. Being a human. <laughs> there's our edge. We've, in a real we're world. We're living a life. Yeah. In a real world, and, and we are experiencing it act by act, and we're... Uh, maybe almost unconsciously, if not unconsciously, working on the things you've just described day and night, probably while we're asleep. Yeah. And uh, see, I'm I'm a champion of practice, and uh, I I think that it's miraculous how any particular person who's committed themselves to a course of action uh, indefinitely courses of action, therefore to become more skillful, more knowledgeable, all the ebbles. Uh, to me, that's, that's, that's where we get our hope. Yeah, but that um, said, there is something to AI that I think we could think about, and, and the analogy would be to something like reading and writing. Um, yeah. Because the, now the brain, uh, I think one could argue, the brain evolved to conversation. That's the basis. I mean, yes. Over over you know two hundred fifty thousand years or whatever it was, the brain evolved from from other you know two legged um, um, primates uh, to um, around conversation, and, and maybe we can get into another aspect of meat because meat talked very well clearly about how that might have happened. Mm-hmm. But my quick point about AI is that, like reading, reading and writing, that's an adaptation that's maybe only a few thousand years old, and only in the last last hundred years has the majority of humans been able to even do it. Well, that's if, if true. It is still, if it is now the majority, I don't know. Probably we're, we might have gone past the majority, but still, you can you can live your life not knowing how to read or write. But yeah, you can still converse now. So that's an adaptation. The brain did not evolve evolve to that. Otherwise, you know, it'd probably be, um, you know, as easy to learn to read and write as it is to learn to speak. 
Um, it clearly isn't. Yeah, so it does take a little time and skill. And the older you are, the harder it is. But my point for AI is that part of what, so there's the capacity to adapt. And, and the other aspect of AI is um, um, a, a, a philosopher of mine um, named uh, uh, Andy Clark, who's in um, uh, Edinburgh, I think. Uh, he he has some terrific articles on from this embodied um, uh, um, kind of an active uh, approach um, to cognition and mind. Um, he talks about the extended mind extending into things like using your your iPhone, where the act is completed by actions on the phone. Hmm. In, a, in in a, in a more direct sense than than not one perhaps where you could even argue that part of the system or this kind of Markov blanket thing of in, internal external surfaces and internal relationships that are that are self-organizing and persistent over time rely on this external thing what happens on the phone or what happens when you interact with a search engine or Google to yeah. complete it co- complete the act yeah and you can extend to that well what what if that you know the the computer side being very mechanical, and yet it's still systematically presenting something in yeah. an interactive way that could become sort of an extension and perhaps an enhancement of interaction. Yeah. So even if the brain, the AI itself isn't just like a brain, it becomes an extension of human brains. See, I wouldn't mind that. I mean, I'd, I'd yeah, say okay, I'm that's sure good. It could go wrong. That's somehow. like a. a <laughs> going back to the original tools. I mean, yeah. If we look, if we look at at the uh, instruments of artificial intelligence as tools that extend our capacities in any particular and many particular ways, that would be something to look forward to. Yeah, on the downside of that, I don't think I can multiply anymore in my head. <laughs> so because I've used calculator too long. I remember you had to learn the timetables when you were in elementary school. <laughs> yeah, and, and and kids don't know cursive anymore, and so so things do. Uh, the brain is we very do efficient. give up, don't they we? They do atrophy, and so so yeah. the downside to that. What part do you think that it it, it it goes to that other conversation we've had about retrieving memories and stuff? But uh, when you're trying to do something. Uh, and it's just like if you don't do it, it fades into a point of a memory where it's relegated to uh, never mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does take energy to things to persist, and there's you know there's there is that sense of neuronal groups that that are actual connections of neurons. But oh, I remember do, that. They do yeah. have to be fed. They have to keep active. They get very thick for very basic things, but they don't for for other things. Um, and in some in some ways, they they can get um, uh, kind of reused. Like I, I just last week, I was speaking to a, a neuroscience scientist, um, uh, Dr. Marina Bedney, who's done some very interesting research on people born deaf, born blind, and looking at their visual cortex with uh, fMRIs, so looking at the activity of the brain, wow, and seeing some some evidence that. Um, they're using their visual parts of their visual cortex in ways that um, sighted people don't to do things that are kind of language and cognition like um, hmm. um, substituting um, various aspects that we might use our eyes and sight of objects for mm-hmm. for something else, but it's still those similar parts of the brain that. So um, something they may hear, yeah, and where the earlier idea is that, is that those parts of the brain simply atrophy, but they don't. They're they're used, but they're used differently. Yeah. 
So very use it or lose it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm watching our time uh, limit, and uh, uh, but I'm delighted that we started this off. Uh, it's a bit of a review, but it, it it becomes very much of the moment when we talk about artificial intelligence, when we talk about uh, the championing of the human capacity to continually learn and grow, uh, largely through repetitive. Uh, work or repetitive action, which we then call practice. So and am I able to conclude, Dave, that if someone adopts uh, something that they want to do uh, continuously, and even though the circumstances change, by act by act, <laughs> they, they will um, become, let's say, what would the word be? Well, practice leads to practice. I think we could, we're, we're arguing yeah. there, like practice as in doing something over and over. Yeah, but it's fun, it's fundamentally what it is. But in the doing over and over, in other words, whatever you want to take, I want to be a master plumber, of course, I'm going to learn, continually learn the basics, and then I'm going to be seeing where things are not as I expected them to be, you know, perception. And so then you try a... a a fix to see if you can make it work in the moment. And, and so you're always in that moment where you move into the next second or two where something comes up and it's different than what you're ready for. And that puts us back into, you know, what I'm hearing you say that Mead and the other pragmatists say is uh, how we become more fully whatever. What do we say? More fully human or more fully skillful or more fully knowledge enabled. Of course, I'm taking it way off uh, <laughs> a, a, the direct line that you're talking about. But what, what's your thought on that? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, the, the, one of the issues is, yes, we're abstracting something about, for example, learning. Yeah. But that we have to understand learning um, in, in these closer quarters of what is... Uh, what is the, um, the systematic interaction with the world moment to moment, um, uh, and how how does that matter for the persistence of of, of uh, any growth of of uh, something new that's learned? Yeah, and that new and what's learned becomes um, increasingly um, well. Actually, it becomes increasingly unconscious. That's yeah. one of the things we're saying. Yeah. And I've been arguing that the act, the act is a moment of consciousness. It's one in which the impulse is connected to an emotion. Yeah. The emotions, and right down to the brainstem, and and um, it's a moment of an observer, uh, and subjective of, of observer coming into being about that and experiencing what it is to, to know that one's um, predictive actions that should have been automatic are now um, just a little off and yeah. become you know meaningful, literally meaningful in the way that yeah. this the sensory motor um, construction has now become um, something that we have to think about, talk about, yeah, um, talk to others about, talk to others about, and having that capacity to, to, to be social, which, which maybe in the next podcast, I'll really yeah. lay out how that works. I really would like to talk more <laughs> about that because that puts us straight into the center of uh, what, what Peter and I have put in 
uh, to the book and, and engendered in the podcast, which, uh, which is to help people understand what, how each individual person in practice is uh, creating essentially a, their way of being. They're creating themselves. And, and I think probably the quick leap to what you said is as you're creating yourself, what you're doing is because you are putting yourself into situations where meaning must be made. You know, in other words, you're taking yourself to where you haven't been before or, or you suddenly notice that something's different. So you've got to do, you've got to do something differently. Therefore, you have to kind of know something differently. And, mm-hmm. and you're your autonomic system reaches around in in your memory and however you've uh, assembled those neurons and says do we know what the hell this is right we're, we're, yeah <laughs> and, and your mind says no <laughs> yeah and so if you do have a, someone next to you like i have you next to me you say well help me understand it right right so and that's a conversational process there you go well, Dave, thank you again. I, I'm looking forward to seeing how this comes out is a, since I have my new birthday microphone, which you've given me, and uh, also had this rare opportunity to be here in Baltimore, in your nice home, visiting, being the old man. So next time we'll, I'll get my notes together and do a, a lecture on how George Herbert Mead's model of, of language languaging by human beings is uh, consistent with a lot of current thinking from this particular point of view, this embodied cognition, this, this inaction, inactionist approach mm-hmm. to, to both um, cognition and um, human interaction. Um, but I haven't found anyone who's taken all that deeply into into details of how language works. Yeah, we may not get that far, but I want to lay out more of the pieces. Well, I think it's important for the world to know, so keep at it, Dave. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to The Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, and one more thing. How could I forget? The book, On Practice as a Way of Being, is available now in digital form, something that would be new, like podcasting to many of us. And it's a a great way of learning more and more about what this podcast presented when Peter Vale and I originated it several years ago. So please come to www.mylibrary, one word, dot world, slash practice, and you'll see what I mean. Thank you.